Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome, welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Lydia Kim. Policy Forum Pod is produced in the charming surrounds of Crawford School, the leading graduate policy school in the region. We have a brilliant range of short courses and degrees on offer, and there's something for everyone. So check it out at crawford.anu.edu.au. I definitely recommend that you have a look. So today we have Quentin here with us. We're all very familiar with him, I'm sure. Quentin Grafton is a professor at the ANU. He's a professor of economics. Hello. Hi, Lydia. Great to be here. So, Quentin, what's caught your eye in the wide world of policy as of late? Well, so much to choose from, but I would say today it's what's going on in terms of the UK and the United Kingdom in terms of Brexit. So more more, more news coming in by the hour, and we'll see where this takes us in the next few days, in the next few weeks. But uh, yeah, it's just an unfolding uh, tragedy of, <laughs> of, uh, of uh, actions, reactions, and statements and bluster. So we'll see where this takes us. But yeah, it seems to me uh, that's uh, that's certainly um, unfolding right before our very eyes. I couldn't agree more. Um, have you been following Brexit step by step or have you kind of just thought – Maybe we'll look at where we end up in a few months' time like I have. Look, I haven't been following it uh, by the hour, but I've certainly been following it since the referendum came through three years ago. In fact, I was one of those people who was surprised by the referendum. I didn't expect it to come out the way it did. But I think it has a much bigger issues than just people in the United Kingdom. This is issues about democracy, what a referendum means, what this means in terms of the power of parliament, what the prime minister, what the executive can do. There's a whole set of issues that have raised there um, themselves in the United Kingdom, but they're not just UK issues. Here in Australia, for example, we have similar parliamentary procedures and processes, although we do have a difference in terms of we have a written constitution. But but there's a whole set of issues that I think resonate that go well beyond the UK. And of course, what EU is doing and uh, how EU will uh, manage or continue in the in the ways that it uh, has in the past or, or not. Uh, those are all sorts of big questions. And you know, I don't think you just have to be someone living in the UK to to be interested and, and indeed concerned about some of the direction of, of the talk and the bluster that we've seen over the little last little while. These are indeed confusing times for everyone all over the world. What do you think of that, listeners? Do you have any opinions on what's been happening with Brexit? We love hearing your thoughts on everything that we talk about on our podcast. So if you could just leave us your comments and questions or your thoughts on our Facebook group, uh, which you can find by searching Policy Forum Pod in the Facebook search engine, or even reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. So Apps, that's A-P-P-S, Policy Forum. Um, You could even email us at podcast at policyforum.net. Now let's move on to today's topic. 오늘은 언어 교육 정책에 대해 얘기할 건데요. Do you mean aujourd'hui nous discuterons la politique de la formation des langues en Australie? 
Yes, indeed, Quentin. Today, we will be looking at language education policy in Australia. So, Australia considers itself a key player in the Asian century. Being located in the Asia-Pacific and having economic partners and policy partners with many of the region's major economies. And as a result, we see the Australian government constantly emphasizing increasing engagement with the states in the region, which it obviously sees as crucial to Australia's future. And in all of this, language is undoubtedly going to be a powerful tool uh, in increasing engagement, communication and cross-cultural understanding And multilingual Australians, which we have many of, could play a key role in helping us understand our neighbours, in helping us strengthen these regional relationships. There's a lot to be done. But despite Australia formally emphasising increased engagement with Asia, the study of Asian languages in Australia is in decline. It begs the question, is Australia doing enough to encourage the study of Asian languages? We've got a great lineup to help us try and answer these questions. Let's hear from Quentin, who we actually have on the panel today. We sure have, Lydia. Is Australia doing enough to encourage the study of Asian languages? Big question that. Well, we've got for a big question. We've got a great lineup to help us try and answer. So let's hear from uh, the three panelists. First of all, let me introduce Associate Professor Angela Scarino. She is Director of the Research Centre for Languages and Culture at the University of South Australia. She's also Chair of the Multicultural Education Committee. Our second panellist is Grazia Scoltelaro. She is a Digital Learning Advisor for the ANU College of Asia and the Pacific. She specialises in technology enhanced language learning. And she is a recipient of several awards, including the ANU Vice-Chancellor Award. And third, but most certainly not last in the sense of uh, priorities, is Luc Coutois. He is an administrative officer and was a research intern at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. He has editorial roles at New Mandela and also the Monsoon Project. He's a former ANU student and he completed a Bachelor of International Studies with a focus on the Thai language. We've invited guests from the Innovative Language Education Symposium hosted by the School of Culture, History and Language at ANU this week. National and international leaders in language education are meeting together to map out their visions of what constitutes innovative language education and to talk about language education more broadly as well. Fantastic lineup, fantastic uh, meeting of the minds. But that's enough from me. Let's hear from our distinguished panel. Hello, Grazia. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Hello, Luke. Hello, Quentin. Glad to be here. And hello, Angela. Hello, Quentin. Lovely to be part of this conversation. Thanks so much for coming to be interviewed by us and be part of our podcast. It's really lovely to have you here. So we're going to set the scene about language, Asian languages, and learning in Australia. So let's get started. But first of all, let's think about what uh, we mean when we talk about Australia encouraging the study of Australian languages. Who is Australia? (laughs) What are we talking about? And what are the benefits? I suppose there's also costs, I suppose, associated with them. But that's sort of the setting the scene about language policy in terms of Asian languages. So I want to sort of ask all of you here that question. Really, 
what is language education policy in Australia? What's what's missing and what's it doing? <laughs> Let's start that off, please. I think that it would be fair to say that um, with the National Policy on Languages in 1987, we had a genuine, um, a genuine policy for multilinguality, uh, one that really wanted to create a bilingual, multilingual population and recognise those who already had languages and encourage those who did not to become, to some degree, multilingual. Um, unfortunately, over the years, that policy faded and there has since that time not been a robust language policy at a national level. There are all kinds of plans, there are all kinds of strategies, but of those, of course, those words soften the notion of policy. And I think that the time is right here and now for a very strong policy uh, for languages um, that actually recognises the need to really develop our skills um, as multilingual um, people, capitalising on those who already bring other languages to uh, our country, but also nurturing the development of that. Why do I say that? For any kind of interaction in the region and more broadly in the world, we mediate any discussion through and in language. If we want to understand other people, it is through language and it is such a powerful resource um, that we can't allow it to be re eroded. Thank you. So maybe if we go back to you, Gracia. And so I think this is a point here that Australia has lots of immigrants. I'm one of them. There are lots of languages spoken in Australia. I think more than 20% of Australian residents were born outside of Australia. So clearly we can see that there's languages spoken here. But So what's well, we'll get to the policy question a little later. But so, what do you see as those benefits? Is it is it speaking the languages, or is look, it the, the cultural issues associated if, with it, or what, what? If I look at myself, I would be a lesser person mm. if I didn't have the benefit of the fact that I speak fluently two languages and understand other two. So that part of me would not exist. And if you can multiply with all the people in Australia that are already born with those languages and those languages are spoken in the home or spoken in the community, that instead of making it an important part of their um, persona, they're actually treated differently because they speak a different language or they speak with an accent. And and I appreciate what, what you're saying. I think the policy is really important, but we really need to shift the mentality and the culture yes. that if you speak with an accent or you speak another language or you bring up a child bilingually, that person is not lesser, is more. And I think that's what we need to shift. And once we shift that, then people start to appreciate languages. And we're not going to be talking about technology later on. I'll say other things that are related to appreciating the fact that people, people can speak other languages. Yeah, it's that issue of respect that comes with learning a language as well. Like, Coming from ANU, studying Thai for three years, going overseas, there's always the assumption that when you go overseas, they will speak English. They will. You won't have to interact with other people in their language. And you notice it immediately when you actually make an effort and you try to speak people's language, whether it be Thai, whether it be Tok Pisin, which is starting to uh, come up at ANU. 
that you really notice the difference and you see people's faces lighten up and they immediately engage with you much more than another person who's just knows English. Um, so there's that aspect to it as well. Because yeah. I think the language and culture, because they are so interconnected, the moment you learn another language, you learn to appreciate another culture and your mind expands. You actually see the world differently. And I think being monolingual does not allow you to see the world from a different perspective. And, you know, we really need to have those different perspectives, especially today. And I just want to remind our listeners that we're focusing here on the Asian languages. Uh, of course, there are indigenous languages here in Australia yes. that are that are spoken and uh, multilingual Australians who've been speaking them for thousands of years. So, uh, but our focus is on, on Asian languages. Uh, obviously, Australia is in the Asian century. Mm. So we want to focus in on those sorts of, uh, those sorts of benefits associated with that. So um, perhaps the next thing would be to focus in on this notion of the Asian century, and that has a big connotations. We had a we had a white paper on that a few years ago, and we had a set of uh, principles and policies that we were going to follow to bring about uh, our place in, in the so-called Asian century. So, I suppose I'd want to direct this question perhaps to you first, Angela. You know, it gets back to these policies. Do you? Th- you've already mentioned this as a policy that we had some years ago, but are you, do you think current policies are sufficient, and if they not sufficient. What needs to happen? Is it is it a question of money? Is it a question of priorities? Or is it a question of people actually demanding this? Uh, what, what's well, the, what's I, the pathway? I think, I think that the pathway is all of the above. Uh, this is a project about uh, hearts and minds and persuading people and, and or bringing people into a conversation that says that multiplicity, multiple ways of speaking, multiple ways of importantly listening, multiple ways of being in the world and trying to understand each other in a complex world is absolutely crucial. So it is a hearts and minds project. It is a funding um, issue to some extent, but we have had previous initiatives, the National Asian Languages and Studies programs in schools in particular. We have had two rounds of um, projects uh, and initiatives focused, funded initiatives. They certainly changed the landscape of languages education in schools, but there were also significant questions about outcomes um, that have to be faced uh, fairly and squarely. Fundamentally, though, um, there is uh, a policy piece that needs to be done, and the time for that is right now. Why? Because there has been a lot of fragmentation of effort. It's not just the policy itself, but it's the policy and the galvanizing and symbolic force that that policy actually brings. It's got to bring, um, it's got to be a policy process that brings people into a conversation such that we can develop the understandings and really inform the publics um, as to why this matters so uh, profoundly. We've got to have a plan and we've got to fund the plan. Indeed. And, and we've got to be well on board. Indeed. And and we have to uh, support and we have to make sure that, that we have enough teachers, which is also trained to teach these languages because the other big problem that we face is because of the lack of commitment with languages. If people don't learn languages at schools and and university and so on, then you're not going to have the baseline to actually have then people who are willing to become language teachers. Why? And so we keep going around and around in those cycles. Why is there that lack of commitment? Because I, being at ANU, 
like having done international security, uh, having lecturers talk about the Asian century uh, at each lecture, but and you have Australia saying we need to engage with our neighbours more, we need to find a way of re-engaging with the region, but at the same time, um, at the domestic level, we're not getting people to learn languages and we're not putting the investment in languages. So why is that not happening? So is it a, it's a demand and supply issue? So the policy issue that you highlighted, Angela, the the the, the lack of funding and planning, but is there a demand issue? Is it because students aren't knocking on the door? So maybe, I mean, obviously, Luke, you, you're a student who's, who's learned a couple of languages, uh, yes. but is that is that part of the issue, uh, that, that there was a demand? Profoundly, I think it is a question of uh, who we are in Australia. I think that the issue here is that we describe ourselves as a multicultural country. Nobody seems to have a problem with that, especially on Australia Day. Um, and we will, we need to acknowledge the um, Indigenous dimensions of all of this. Um, but perhaps we'll move on to that later. The, um, the value proposition is simply one that um, is not there in the vast majority, uh, with the vast majority of the population. And the value proposition um, is such that we accept that we are a multicultural country, but we don't call ourselves a multilingual country. That's, That's the distinction. Also, multi simply means many. And we have a multicultural policy that permits and encourages multiple people living side by side. Multi does not conjure up the notion of actual interaction, dialogue, exchange. So multiculturalism could be understood simply as a co-presence, when in fact what we actually need is a population that seeks out opportunities to actually engage, connect, discuss, discover our different ways and benefit from the value of our different ways of seeing. It is that kind of diversity that is the fulcrum of creativity. And it is that argument, that line, it's a line of thinking that says, yes, we are multicultural, but the language falls to one side, and the language has to be centre stage in any notion of multi. It's for that reason that in my own research um, with colleagues at the Research Centre for Languages and Cultures and our work here with the School of Culture, Language, um, History and Language, um, we are really um, understanding language learning itself and the innovation is towards an inter- linguistic and intercultural orientation where we actually teach students and develop in students this capability to move between languages and cultures with comfort, with ease. That's the project that we need to fund and develop. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm signing on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. We need more like you. Perhaps part of this multi sort of approach that we've talked about is, um, you know, instilling these values at an earlier age, whether that be in primary school or secondary school. Is there something that can be done perhaps earlier on in the education system in regards to language education policy um, here in Australia? 
Yeah, I, I really think that learning a language should start really early because the earlier you start to appreciate the fact that you can learn another language and children learn languages really, really easily. And to build, when you speak one language and then you learn a second language, to learn a third or a subsequent language is actually... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Really easier. That doesn't mean you should not be learning languages when you are in primary and high school, but I think we sooner, the sooner we start and the sooner we make people appreciate that having a second language is also a good, is a good thing, I think you're going to change, the, 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 you're going to shift the way people are going to think in the future. And I think we need to, like, it's like the environment. You start early and people have a different mindset when they grow up and, they, and then they start appreciating the fact that they speak other languages. Yeah, I lived in Canada for many years and in Canada they have a, a quite a different approach to their multiculturalism and in terms of multi-language learning. So obviously it's the French and English, the, the, the two uh, two uh, national languages. And so if you're an English speaker, uh, there are opportunities at early immersion and middle exactly. immersion exactly. to actually learn uh, French. Yeah. It also exists the other way as mm. well in mm. terms of uh, English immersion as well. And so those sorts of issues, I think, need to be put on the on the table here yes. in, in Australia, that that's, that's at the primary school or high school level uh, before you, you arrive at university. I think Australia is doing a good job of trying to get people to learn languages at an earlier age. Um, like we see there's definitely a strong interest at the university level with the new Colombo plan, uh, for example, that's been a huge success. But I'm not sure this is correct, but there might be more of an issue in terms of resources. How do we get enough teachers into the country when there is a very high demand, but at the same time, you could have a school which wants to offer Indonesian or Mandarin, but there isn't um, enough resources or people um, that your schools are able to recruit to get students to learn the language. And, and it's not just a question of recruiting. Learning a language takes time. It's not something that you do six months one language and then another six months you do another language. You need to build on the knowledge. So the idea of having pathways for students that when they start a language, they can add another language, but they can continue so they can keep developing those skills. That's a really important thing that it keeps being not taken seriously. In Australia, we are actually uh, and have for a long time recognised the idea of an, of, uh, an early start. Uh, in fact, currently, the Australian government is funding a program not only in primary schools, but in early childhood settings. Um, and that's the ELLA, uh, Early Learning Language um, uh, program through a series of apps and so on that are being made available to very, very young learners. I actually think we need a multi-pronged strategy that continues with the early start but also that we have a, a, a dedicated strategy for primary. The problem in primary is time on task. Um, people are studying a language or learning a language, but uh, perhaps one lesson a week. 
at best two lessons a week. Now, no one is going to learn a language in a primary school setting without the richness of creating that language environment for the young learners. Junior secondary is the age of teenagers and uh, the widening of their own interests, uh, consciousness of themselves as young social folk and so perhaps uh, a little bit timid about actually pronouncing another language and, you know, what does this mean to me, the diversity of interests. We need a different kind of strategy for the junior secondary. At senior secondary, apart from the state of Victoria, which has um, roughly 19% of its students taking a language at year 12, all the other states of Australia have a very, very low uptake at senior secondary, and that needs to be looked at. So it needs to be a differentiated strategy for the different phases of uh, schooling uh, and really tackling the issue at that particular level of education. But at all levels, it would be tempting to say an early start, but some kind of intervention, and I use that word deliberately, intervention is needed in a different way at the different phases of schooling. Angela, you mentioned some technology um, briefly there. Grazia, your area of specialty is obviously technology and learning. How do you think we could apply some of those things that we have accessible to us um, to these settings? I actually agree with Angela that you need to take an approach where it covers all sorts of things. The good thing about technology is that the world, technology has actually made the world a lot smaller than it used to be. Once upon a time, if you wanted to interact with somebody from the target language, you had to go there, you had to do it via the phone. So it was very difficult to actually use the language in a real context with a real person. This day and age, you can do that so easily with, you know, the um, places like Facebook and WhatsApp and things like that. It's really easy to connect with people that speak different languages and different cultures in a much more meaningful way. Um, one of the things that I want to say is that also I can see a shift because of technology. Once upon a time, if you heard somebody speaking with someone else in another language, people would frown upon the fact that you were not speaking English. You go to any public uh transport this day, a train, a bus or whatever, and people not only are speaking to each other in a different language, they interact with a mobile phone in a different, in a different language. So technology has actually opened the doors for people to connect and communicate in the realistic way that is really needed to learn a language. And this is why we are building on here at INU with some of our smaller languages, that because we will never have enough students to basically bring on campus, we are offering some of our languages online in a way that you interact with the teacher, you use the resources in a real context, and you develop the skills of languages that will make it meaningful for you, even though you cannot basically be physically here. There's no doubt that um, technology has absolutely revolutionized uh, language learning and the possibilities that it affords are um, just innumerable. My um, question, though, uh, in relation to technology is that, and we're here uh, for um, a symposium on innovation in language learning with the School of uh, Culture, History and Language. Um, and um, our uh, issue, my issue here is that we can't 
think about the issue in terms of um, technology alone. Technology itself is a mediating resource. What we actually need to do is invite students to participate through technologies, through face-to-face means, but to actually interact and then to step back from those interactions and reflect on what went on there. Why was that communication successful? Why wasn't it so that the students not only learned to participate and benefit from the technologies, but also benefit from intercultural reflection and developing of these um, intercultural dispositions and capabilities uh, that we are keen to develop. So this is this is not either or; it's both. It's isn't both. It? Yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely so, so, both. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely both. So I do I have, mean, sorry, go ahead. I do have one concern in terms of using technology is the level of motivation that students will have to actually study the language. Um, Lydia, you mentioned that a lot of the time people are mistaken when they think about learning language online as if it's just pressing buttons and not really interacting with the teacher. So that is the case. But my concern is what's the retention rate? You mentioned in primary school that we're only learning languages for six months for one year. Is that likely to happen with the use of technology when students are studying the language? Well, I have to tell you something quite interesting. We started offering some of our languages through Open University. And in the beginning, we thought that the people who were going to be taking the languages through Open University would only be people that only want to do six months of Tibetan or six months of Mongolian or six months just to learn the language. One of the interesting things that we have observed, this is the second year, is that some of the students that started taking languages in first semester, first year, they've actually continued. And they continued because... The courses that we are offering are not the press the button and to Mm. uh, answer Mm. your question. You are actually in a live classroom, even though it's virtual, with a real teacher. Those classrooms get recorded. So if you want to go back and review, that's something that you cannot do face-to-face. You are not going to record a tutorial. Mm. So if you want to go back and actually see that lesson again and say, oh, now I get what this person said. Oh, now I understand. The feedback we are getting from the students and funny enough from the teachers is that they actually misunderstood what teaching online was. And now they understand that there is a proper way to do it where you've got the interaction and the person and you are part of a community, even though you're not in the same room, you actually start to get the benefits of the same exposure of a face-to-face classroom with the opportunity to be able to do it from anywhere and not say, I have to give up learning um, Tibetan because I cannot come to Canberra or have to give up learning this language. We give the opportunity to, to teach those languages, especially like Tokpisin yes. and Tetum and other languages that are disappearing everywhere else because they are too expensive to teach if you have to bring everybody on campus. Do you recognizing that, sorry, re- recognizing that, we do still have to make sure that there are opportunities for people to go to other countries to learn the language a bit more, to be able to use it as well, because whilst there might still be um, an interest in learning language through technology, um, I definitely I do have a concern about the, the level of impact that might have on the depth of connection Australians are able to build with um, their counterparts in other, in other I regions. I think that you're right in the sense of 
building relationships and that's what we do through and with language and you've mentioned already the way a person's face lights up if you actually speak to them in their in their own language that activity is absolutely yes. paramount um and doing a combination of of that kind of um uh, engagement with building up communities around the learning of that language is really uh something yes. that's uh, quite quite important uh, yeah. valuable uh, yeah. for all of us to to envisage um we can't deny the massive opportunities that technology provides massive but can you imagine you make those friendships in Thailand, Thailand and so on and then you sustain those friendships uh through uh interaction online when you can't be there and this is how we form those deep friendships that will actually alter uh mm. Australia's um way of engaging with the world sounds like there's a lot of promise and potential for us in Australia not only with technology but with different policies so so perhaps we could close in terms of thinking about that so the so the issue is not just about for policymakers although this is mm-hmm. for policymakers our podcast and others but just also thinking let's about let's say about educators as well so if yes. you could offer one piece of advice to policymakers decision makers and educators as well uh, in Australia and wanting them to encourage and improve uh, the effectiveness of Asian language study in Australia you know what would that be so i'll start with you angela and we'll we'll go around let us see it as a long term project of educating young people um uh, and adults in relation to language and the broader community in appreciating language it is a learning project it's not necessarily an international relations it is ultimately but at the most foundational level it is a learning project it is an educational mission and i think that we have to foreground that in the immediate term in order to build the benefits that we desire yeah i think we need to think big you need to think long term as you said mm. um maybe perhaps applying the new colombo plan to a much broader spectrum of students new mm. colombo plan 3.0 Yes. applying it to high school maybe not primary school i don't think many parents would uh be too keen on having their children go far away overseas but maybe we could uh try to do that for high school students i think that we need to think globally we need to create global citizens and to do that the first thing is to you really need to support and encourage parents who already speak the language to keep the language in the home to keep teaching the language to their children there are a lot of asian parents which are discouraged from teaching from speaking their own language at home i think we need to start with that and i think when you start with that appreciation to say one more language is a good thing then we will change the way people will see languages and culture Thank you so much for that bit of advice everyone. Um we just love to thank you Angela, Luke and Grazia for joining us um in this conversation today. Hopefully we make the right moves in the future and we can see a very multicultural and multilingual society. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Joseph, Angela and Grazia for the discussion today. 
So, listeners, we'd like to know what you thought of our discussion today. Leave us a comment or question on Facebook or on Twitter. On Facebook, we're Policy Forum Pod, and on Twitter, we're APPS Policy Forum. So at the end of each week, uh, we answer some of the questions and respond to some of the questions that you've left us. Last week, we had a podcast called Can Australia Make Its Waste Work? And uh, we talked about the challenges of waste management. We also looked at the alternative methods of dealing with waste in Australia. Um, We looked at the future of waste management, and we evaluated the cost effectiveness and sustainability of these methods. So we had a comment by Shireen Lamont, um, one of our our great members of our um, Policy Forum pod Facebook group. So she said, thanks for discussing this topic. It was much more optimistic than I expected, and I hope that we will start dealing with the waste uh, that we get in a more sustainable way, as long as our governments put some policies in place. Now, Quentin, did you have any opinions on waste management policy, or in your everyday life, do you see any areas that we could improve on how we manage our recycling, our waste in general? Well, I think it's really a partnership, isn't it? Uh, we as individuals or in households have to do our part, and that's part of the you know waste recycling process. But we can't do that unless we have a government, either at a regional or a local stake, or even in at a federal level, that are helping us. So if we put it out on our, on our front step and we don't get someone picking up, it's not going to work. And if that uh, waste doesn't get uh, disposed of in an appropriate way, well, we won't know about it. That requires government to get involved. And so it's private sector, public sector, and it requires people. So uh, that's, that mix is always tricky in some sense <laughs> to get it all right. But uh, let's hope we can get it right because uh, going on in terms of exporting lots of waste across state borders or internationally is just not going to work uh, down the road. And so we have to do things differently. And, and I think that what that podcast was about was about thinking about how we can do things differently and looking forward to, to, to looking at those different options. And so let's put them on the table. Let's uh, let's make them happen. Let's let's get some action rather than uh, than talk. Couldn't agree with you more, there, Quentin. And for the, those of you who live in Australia, make sure that you check your um, state government's website to make sure that you're recycling properly. Some things are recycled differently in different states. Um, so do check that out. Anyways, a big thank you to um, everyone who's commented, and a reminder to keep sending all your comments and questions in. Again, that's APPS Policy Forum on Twitter or just Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. We'd also like to welcome all of our new members. Um, so we have quite a few. We're, we're becoming a big, big family on um, Policy Forum. So we'd like to welcome Andy Nguyen, Kailash Meher Pirk, Adam Rowland, Dwi Rahayunenshi. I'm so sorry if I've mispronounced your name. Jonathan Zabriskie, Dan Builder, Ben Wicks, Andre Kwok, Dominic HT, and Hui Tuang to our podcast group. It's nice to have you here. And remember, we're still giving out our 99 policy problems, but Brew ain't one mugs. There are two ways to get your hands on them. Firstly, you can suggest a topic on our pod Facebook group. If we make an episode on the topic you suggested, we'll send you a mug. Otherwise, you could also have your comments or questions read out in either Policy Forum Pod or Democracy Sausage Pod. And once you've reached five, we'll send you a mug there too. You just have to let us know every time that you do get your question or comment read out. Um, Just comment on the Policy Forum episode that's been posted in the Facebook group. So... If you've enjoyed today's episode, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. They're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get them from. 
This episode has been produced by the team at Policy Forum. Executive production by Martin Pierce, writing by Liliana Kasabon Mitchell, and editing by Branko Svetijevich. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, bye. And goodbye for me. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.